The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Tonight we would like to talk about something and someone remarkable, the St. Philomena, uh, the Wonder Worker, as, as she has been titled by Pope Gregory XVI. And in 1802, her tomb was discovered in the catacombs of Rome. That tomb had previously been undisturbed for roughly uh, 1,700 years, and upon its discovery, there was found three terracotta slabs, uh, each entitled with the inscription, Pax Tecum Philomena, or Peace Be With You, Philomena. The uh, devotion, the fame of this Saint Philomena has spread far and wide, practically overnight. And Father, my question for you is, how did all of this happen? This lowly virgin, Saint Philomena, of whose life we know practically nothing, uh, practically overnight devotion to her has spread over the entire world. Gregory XVI has labeled her the great wonder worker of the 19th century. She is one of the most extraordinary, one of the most popular saints in all of the 2,000 year history of the Catholic Church. How did all of this happen, Father? Well, it would have to happen by the grace of God. Um, Truly, uh, she is um, able to accomplish great things uh, thanks to the power that God has given her. And that God has wanted to reveal her to us now, to make her known to us in our own day for reasons uh, of his, his own providence. And uh, he has given her the grace, um, the position to intercede for us and to obtain many favors for us. Um, she was martyred during the reign of Diocletian, which would put her death about the year 300 or so. So it would be about 1,500 years that her body lay in the tomb. Uh, her body actually was discovered in the catacomb of Santa Priscilla, Santa Priscilla, <clears throat> which is not in the catacombs uh, you know, Saint, uh, <clears throat> of St. Calixtus and St. St. Sebastiano down south of Rome, uh, these catacombs, the, the catacombs of St. Priscilla, are to the north of Rome. And um, one has to travel a bit of a distance to get to them. They're kind of north northeast of Rome. They're on the estates of St. Priscilla, who was the wife of the Senator Pudens. Uh, actually, it's in her family. Uh, the, the estates that she willed to the church to be used as a burial, a burial ground, catacombs specifically for the Christian people. And so, uh, throughout the, the centuries afterwards, uh, Christians, many martyrs were buried there, martyred popes, for example. And uh, Philomena was one of them. When her, when her uh, tomb was discovered, actually what it was was a, uh, 
and excavated uh, uh, loculus a, uh, in the wall of the catacomb, covered with the marble, pieces of marble. Uh, the the uh, marble was actually broken. There were three parts, right? And uh, it seems as though they were patched together after that at some point. We don't know exactly when that happened. We do know for a fact, of course, that, uh, well, those who know these things, the archaeologists know this about the catacomb, catacombs and uh, how things were done there, uh, that the plaster work that was used to reassemble the slabs, uh, the three pieces of the burial slab of St. Philomena, were put back in, um, in reverse order. What they found actually uh, was the, in the order that they found it written there in the slabs as, as they were mounted back on the wall, um, was uh, Lumina Pax Tecum Fi, F.I. And um, in reassembling the slabs in the proper order, the experts came to the conclusion that they really were meant to, to say Philomena uh, Pax Tecum or Pax Tecum Philomena. Um, and not an uncommon name. It means a lover of light, right? And Pax Tecum is not just Pax Tidi, peace be to you, but peace be with you, as a more, um, shall we say, active or positive um, significance, okay? But on the slabs of marble that covered uh, the, the uh, opening where her remains were found, um, there were certain symbols that were pretty, pretty telling. There was the, uh, well, there was an anchor. An anchor was uh, engraved, the figure of an anchor was engraved into the marble. Uh, the anchor symbolizes faithfulness and strength in faith. Um, it can also signify a means of martyrdom, though. There were saints who were drowned by having anchors tied around their neck and thrown into the, into the waters. Like, for example, St. Clement of Rome. Uh, there were arrows, a couple of arrows on her tomb. Uh, again, you know, uh, reasonably interpreted as uh, symbol, symbolic of her martyrdom. Uh, there was a scourge, a uh, whip, a thonged whip, and uh, which again, Often, there are many cases of martyrs who were whipped to death with the lead thongs on the whips. And um, there was, of course, the lily symbolizing purity. All of that was there. And the palm branch. Palm branch, which often signifies martyrdom. All of these things were engraved on the marble slabs covering her remains. And then uh, when the slabs were taken off, they found there was a, a vial of dried blood also. Again, you know, when you put all these things together, they all point in one direction. That is the, direct, the direction of a, of a martyr. And uh, there are even those who are present when the grave was opened who testified to the way that the dried blood actually began to sparkle, as it were, at so many, you know, gems. And... Um, they uh, determined that the remains that were there belonged to a young girl. Uh, they're figuring somewhere around 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, that was really all they knew. 
Now, they didn't have any written, uh, written accounts of her life or death or miracles at that time. It was actually with that discovery and the publication of the news that they had found this, uh, these remains in the catacombs of Santa Priscilla that uh, various good souls began to invoke her intercession in heaven. Up until then, we had no record of anyone invoking her intercession. I mean, if she was just buried as one of thousands and thousands of martyrs back at, during the reign of Diocletian, um, you know, there, there's no uh, there's no record that anyone was inter was invoking her intercession particularly, you know. <clears throat> but no sooner were her remains found than people began to invoke her intercession. Um, there was uh, well, Pauline Jericho was a very famous cure, uh, received a very famous cure of an otherwise incurable disease through the intercession of Saint Philomena and became very devoted to her. Saint the, the Curie of Ars, uh, um, Saint John Vianney, had a great devotion to her. And uh, you might say he, he even uh, adopted her as a great uh, co-worker in his work here on earth. He appealed to her intercession. And uh, time and time again, the miracles associated with St. John Vianney, he attributed to her, gave her credit. In fact, he w began by calling her his sister, he referred to her as his sister, and as he became older uh, in, li in life, he began to refer to her as his daughter. She did not age, although he did. And he always maintained a very, very a spiritual bond with her. And she, as it were, never failed him in her intercession. Um, St. John Vianney was not simply, um, shall we say, deflecting the honor, the fame, uh, of his miracles to her, uh, he really did uh, tribute in his own, in his own humility um, the miracles, the miraculous things that uh, were accomplished in his life. He, he attributed the, to them to her intercession. Um, why God would uh, arrange that at this particular in the year eighteen o two that a saint such as young Philomena would. Uh, come to light, we don't know. Uh, but God knows why he would choose her. After all, if you were to make a list of all of the virgin martyrs of, of the empire of Rome, it would be a very, very long list. Just of the virgin martyrs, you know, the ones we know, uh, make up quite a substitute, could make it an entire litany, quite a lengthy litany of saints to invoke in heaven, of the virgin martyrs. And um, they often belong to royal or uh, royal or noble families. And uh, because of that, uh, at times, the emperors would give them the great privilege of being murdered in their own homes. Like St. Cecilia, for example, St. Agnes, and some of the others. Uh, one might say, well, that was very kind of the emperor to, to do that, but actually it was politically uh, astute for the emperors because murdering 13, 14, 15-year-old uh, children in public did not make the emperors look very heroic, okay? especially when they were being martyred for their faith in Christ and the girls were showing such 
powerful examples of fidelity to Christ. They were totally unshaken by anything that would, the emperor would use to threaten them. That make it that made a, a wonderful impression on other people, stirred up uh, their faith and their courage. Um, and the emperors soon discovered this. In fact, Satan soon discovered that he was doing himself more harm than good by uh, feasting on the blood of the martyrs, especially the virgin martyrs of Rome. He was actually uh, fulfilling what Tertullian said was causing the church to grow. The blood of the martyrs is, is the seed of the church. You know? And these virgin martyrs are exemplified that. St. Philomena among them. Just one of many, many virgin martyrs. Um, the particulars of her life even were not known. You know? There's no record of them anywhere. The only way we know any details of her life uh, were through the accounts of certain devotees she had who uh, said that they had received private revelations uh, from her about the details of her life and her death, her martyrdom. Uh, the church uh, considers that we used to be pious stories, and the church gives a certain credence to them, but the church does not say that they're infallibly correct. The church has never used her supreme uh, authority, uh, magisterial authority, to, to decree these, these, these accounts of the private revelations um, to be divine revelation or anything of the kind, you know. Uh, pious, yes. Worthy of belief, yes. Uh, they echo the accounts of so many other virgin martyrs whose lives are very well documented and very well known. Uh, the stories from the life of St. Philomena. Um, so they are very credible. <clears throat> Uh, also from the history of Diocletian himself. You know, everything we read about St. Philomena is very credible. Too. Um, but as you know, Tom, uh, the modernists have uh, tried to um, attack the saints in many ways. And it's, it's kind of ironic in a way, because when they first um, set about their liturgical changes, right, uh, during the later in the reign of Pius the Twelfth, then during John the Twenty Third, then during Paul the Sixth, they were basically chipping away at the Church's hagiography and and uh, and um, just the, the the devotion to the saints, the certitude of the saints' saints' lives, and and uh, the very inspiring accounts of their lives, their martyrdom, and the miracles that they worked. Here they, you know, used the pretext of, of um, bringing St. Joseph's name in the, into the liturgy, right? They wanted to uh, introduce St. Joseph's name into the list of saints invoked in, in the Mass, okay? And, of course, this appeared to be very pious. You know, people thought, well, Giuseppe Roncalli, Joseph, he wants to honor, uh, John the Twenty-Third wants to honor St. Joseph. And so, uh, yes, how can we say no? How can we refuse to introduce the name of St. Joseph in the Mass? Well, the fact is, of course, this is the modernist idea, that they can change anything. For centuries and centuries and centuries, the name of St. Joseph was not entered into the Mass. It had been thought of, it had been proposed, it had never been done. Why? Because St. Joseph died before the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross, and that was considered to be the line of demarcation. He's a saint of the Old Testament, a great saint, 
Beloved of God, think of the Old Testament. There's a principle involved here. They wanted to break that principle. They wanted to cross that line. Um, and they did. And so, of course, uh, they played upon people's piety to have their way. Uh, they introduced in St. Joseph in the so-called canon, and in doing so, they destroyed the very idea of a canon. The very idea of the canon of the Mass, something set and fixed in it, they, they broke that. And so the, all the transports of piety that they feigned as their excuse to introduce the name of St. Joseph into the canon immediately gave way. Once they set that principle, they began to change everything. And there was no canon. Now we have several different Eucharistic prayers. And even the so-called saints, well, I should put it that way because the saints are really there. The saints that they, they had uh, St. Joseph join, they put his name in with the other saints. Then when they came with their Novus Ordo, they put them all in parentheses and said they were optional. Now you didn't have to mention them. And so the truth was beginning to come out that they were nothing but impious frauds who were wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's exactly what these change agents were, the modernists. But in the process of their changing of the liturgy, uh, they were attacking the idea, especially the age-old saints of the Catholics believed in, very familiar with, and uh, were very beloved, uh, during the 1960s. Uh, especially during the 1960s, but even later too, even, even through the 1970s, but I'd say especially through the 1960s. Um, Paul VI especially was dropping saints left and right from the universal calendar. St. Christopher, St. Philomena, St. Barbara, uh, St. Catherine of Alexandria. I mean, these are great saints. Um, who Paul VI was just jettisoning them, throwing them out of the universal calendar of the church. And so the Catholic people who, you know, knew their lives very well, knew, knew the accounts of their lives and were very inspired by the accounts of their, their martyrdoms and by all of the accounts of the miracles that were obtained by the intercession of heaven, all of a sudden, now, not only were these people bereft of their saints, they're thinking, well, wait a minute, what, they, they threw them out of heaven? How can they do that after all this? How can they simply erase what, we've, what the church has believed and the examples that the church has held up to fermentation and so on, because that's what the saints are, the examples given to us by God, and intercessors in heaven? Are we supposed to say that all of the miracles that are attributed to the intercession of these saints are nothing but myths? Well, that's, that's the modernist plan. That's exactly what they want to do. They want to undermine people's faith on the process of redefining faith to something that is totally different. They want to destroy faith as the church herself knows it, as Catholics hold it to be. And they did a very good job of it. Um, now, the pretext that the Novosura used was, well, we don't have enough historical evidence to, to show that this is true. Well, again, you know, they're, they're read between the lines here and see what they're saying. That the belief of the church is worthless as far as evidence, has no evidentiary value at all. Uh, we have to basically insist, uh, like the, the, the atheists of the world, that you need nothing but, uh, you know, uh, documentary evidence and something tangible. Uh, faith gives you nothing. Deny faith. Actually, faith is the enemy of truth, right? Because faith will lead you to believe things that you can't prove to yourself. But wait a minute. That's the whole idea, isn't it? Faith is a belief that the truth is something you can't prove. That's the whole idea, right? So suddenly now we're saying, well, these things have to be proven or they're of no value. 
Right? And the faith of the church throughout the centuries is not only of no value, it's the enemy of truth because it just induces people to believe legends anyway. So <clears throat> we have to look at these things without any faith and distill down simply uh, what we can prove to ourselves on the basis of text historical criticism uh, of people who have no faith whatsoever. That is what we have to rely on now to decide who these people were, if, even if they were. Yeah. That's all that's left. The modernists did a great job of taking the axe, the hatchet, uh, the sledgehammer to relief in the saints, uh, the saints I mentioned and so many, many others. In fact, there's talk about 200 saints of uh, the centuries that, uh, centuries of piety and belief and, and, uh, and intercession uh, that Paul VI simply uh, tore out the pages of the universal calendar of the saints of the church and said they threw them away. And said, so you can't believe all this stuff. You know, you're no reason. There's no proof. Um, but this, this was a man who really had no faith himself. You know? He proved it in so many ways. But this is the liturgy they've given us, too. Now, you have to remember now, you know, not only do they want to get rid of the old saints, they want to bring in the new saints. So they start introducing saints. Uh, some of them are very far-fetched. I mean, they've, they've uh, canonized people who, uh, whose lives have subsequently proven to be very flawed. So there's no infallibility at work there, you know. It was a great scandal. Uh, a couple of their... their uh, um, their canonizations, in fact, have produced great scandal in terms of what was subsequently found in the lives of certain people they canonized. And now they're talking about uh, finally canonizing Paul VI. Uh, they canonized uh, John the Twenty-Third. They canonized John Paul the Second. They couldn't quite fit Paul the Sixth in there yet. They still had to finesse him some way, and somehow, uh, shall we say? Uh, sanitize his his life. Uh, they're still working on that, but they're going to get him in there into that uh, little trinity of theirs, Novus Ordo Trinity of John the Twenty Third, Paul the Sixth, and John Paul the Second. They're going to fit him in there somehow by hook or by crook. And um, there's a reason why Father Lu Luigi Villa was publishing the books that he was. You know, uh, Paul the Sixth. Blessed, never. You know, John Paul II, blessed, never. You know, gives him a case why they, it's impossible. No Catholic can believe this or accept that. But then, on the other hand, uh, another way that they've attacked the whole idea of the Church's saints is by elevating people who we would have every reason to believe are saints. I mean, Padre Pio, I mean, who could argue with that? that we believe Padre Pio is very saintly, right? and uh, very likely a saint in heaven, right? Jacinta and Francisco. I mean, we, we have every reason to believe that there's saints in heaven. We, well, I, you don't doubt it, I don't think. I don't doubt it, of course, you know. Uh, we certainly don't believe it because Francis said it, though. That's the point. Uh, Francis having said it is not a motive for belief that, of that. We just, we just know on the basis of what we do believe that these two little children died, lived the holy lives, died holy lives, deaths, and we're quite convinced that they are in heaven. But uh, you see, here's the problem. Even when the Novus Ordo canonized somebody, they twist their reputation to serve their own modernist purposes. I mean, who would have ever thought of uh, Blessed Oliver Plunkett to be the, a patron saint of ecumenism? 
a man who stood on the scaffold and was asked by the Protestants who were, who were murdering him, who were hanging him, to join them in prayer. And he said, I will not pray with you. He refused absolutely to pray with them. And when they asked him where he wanted to be buried, he said, well, don't bury me and you want to hear cemeteries with a bunch of heretics. Mm -hmm. So they turned around and they make him a patron saint of ecumenism. I'm surprised that St. Oliver, blessed Oliver Plunkett didn't strike them all with lightning. <laughs> do I believe that he is a saint in heaven? Of course I do, you know, but not because they said so. Uh, so even when they do take someone whose life was really worthy of uh, veneration and uh, admiration and imitation, <coughs> you can't believe they're saints because they, they said so, because the monarchs said so, because what they're trying to do, they're just trying to use the, these people and abuse them Again, to serve their own modernist purposes, to attack faith. So they're not to be trusted. And certainly in uh, jettisoning uh, St. Philomena, they're not doing any harm to her. What they are doing damage to is the church and to the souls here on earth, who, uh, who still uh, uh, love her and venerate her, but who are somehow slavishly tied to the Novus Ordo um, and the, the Novus Ordo, the New Order powers that be, like Francis, who are trying to figure out, well, gee, how could the Holy Father, Paul VI, um, suddenly just, uh, just leave her out <coughs> or basically cut her out of the universal list of saints? You know? Well, that's a dilemma that the followers of the Novus Ordo can't resolve. And Father, with the modernists doing all of these things and trying to do away with the saints and St. Philomena and with the 1800s and now the 1900s having passed, mm. do you think that St. Philomena is still active today? Do you think that she could be in some way a remedy to all of these, these modernist errors? Oh, yes. Well, she's the patron. The church and names saints as patrons of various things that kind of typified them in life mm. or somehow reflect their miracles. St. Philomena is a patron saint of young, young people, she paints saint of children, uh, so even younger than, uh, you know, than uh, people her age. Um, she's also a patron saint of real estate, curiously enough. We uh, actually were invoking her with Our Lady under the title of the Immaculate Conception to obtain the church that we have now. And that is why, uh, in, in honor of her, intercession before God to clear the way for us to obtain this church. We still have a statue that we had custom made uh, of her near the pulpit of the church to recall her martyrdom, uh, to recall her intercession in heaven, and in particular her intercession for us because we were invoking her aid to obtain this church. We also also honor her uh, and I would say even more so, she honors us because her relics are in the Blessed Mother's altar in our church. Uh, as you know, um, the Catholic Church, not the Novus Ordo, you know, but you wouldn't think that, but there are people who might think uh, that I'm talking about their, the Novus Ordo when I say the Catholic Church. I'm not, okay? Please understand that I have no... This is the anti-Catholic Church, the Novus Ordo. The New Order is the anti-Catholic Church. It was created specifically to completely annihilate the true Catholic Church and to annihilate the true Catholic faith and replace it with modernism. Um, so even as the, the new church is basically um, um, 
trying to reseal the tomb of St. Philomena and put her back in that tomb and shut her up in that tomb again as though she had never been discovered and never, never been known. Just as they wanted, they wanted to do that with our Lord too. You know, they wanted, they want to put him back in that tomb and seal that up and not let him, you know, as if he never arose. That's what the modernists are trying to do ultimately. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised if you're trying to do that with Saint Philomena, and uh, or Saint Christopher, or Saint Catherine of Alexandria. Curious enough, Paul the Sixth actually just removed the name of Saint Catherine of Alexandria from the uh, list of saints recognized from the universal calendar of the church. And John Paul II put her back in. So what does that say? They can't make up their minds. Yeah. Is she risen she? Does she belong there or doesn't she? And, the, and people go along with this charade. They go, oh, well, look, now she's back in heaven again. How handy. Uh, it's nonsense, absolute nonsense, people. So anyway, uh, but uh, Tom, the the, um, fact is that St. Philomena still has a great deal of power in heaven. There's a reason why God revealed her to us today and has made her such a uh, powerful, saintly, spiritual companion of saints here on earth like St. John Vianney. I mean, here's a man who... Satan protested one day how much he hated John Vianney. He said if there were two other priests, if there were just three priests like him in the whole world, his kingdom would be at an end. You know, Now, Satan might be given to hyperbole, but nonetheless, I mean, that's, that's a, quite an endorsement from the wrong people, but it's a very great endorsement. And here's a man who, uh, you know, walked, as it were, hand in hand with little St. Philomena through life and relied on her. And uh, she still has she still has the power there. God gave her here for a reason. She's a lover of light. You know that's very important today. Well, today, uh, where there is so much so much spiritual darkness, and um, we wanted her relics in the altar with the relics of Saint Maria Goretti, the two saints whose martyrs are in the Blessed Mother's altar at our Church Immaculate Conception. Uh, because St. Philomena represented uh, the early Virgin Martyrs. St. Maria Goretti represented the, as it were, contemporary Virgin Martyrs. And they're, they're united by their same faith, their hope and great love for our Lord, and by the fact that they were willing to lay down their lives for our Lord, centuries apart. Uh, but the same faith, the same hope, the same love, charity, motivated them. And they are sisters in heaven, yeah, truly. So, uh, they... Um, there, their mortal remains are united there in uh, the sepulchre where the martyrs' remains are in the altar of Our Lady. You know, you're familiar with altar stones, which is a you know square pieces of marble, generally square, maybe an inch thick. They have chiseled out a a, a little well inside where they put the martyrs' relics and then seal over them, right? And that's an altar stone. You can take it, you can put it into an altar, a wooden altar, and so on. But at Immaculate Conception, uh, we, don't have the, we don't have altar stones as such because the surface, the mensa of each altar, is one solid slab of marble. And so the entire altar is the altar stone. You know, and the, the relics are contained within 
the altar is, they don't have a stone you can pull out and walk away with and, and put, you know, carry off. As so many churches have with, mar with wooden altars, they drop a marble stone into the big open, opening. So, um, the Novus Ordo has, has done away with, well, they don't require the martyrs' relics there, as the Catholic Church always traditionally did. Uh, now they, they just have a plain old mensa. I mean, when in the, in the old days, if you had a surface where the altar was going to be, where the, where the, uh, which was going to be used for the offering of Mass, you couldn't just have a mensa, a plain old table. There had to be the relics of the martyrs, which constituted it an altar. Now all they've got is a mensa. It means table. That's all they've got. They don't have an altar. They don't have any altars in the Novus Ordo. All they've got is tables. Why? Because they don't have a sacrifice. And it shows, too. Yeah. Yeah. Father, could you, could you tell us some of the ways that the faithful could honor St. Philomena? For example, there's her cord, uh, there's the St. Mm. Philomena oil, there's her chaplet. Could you detail any of those for us? Uh, well, I mean, what you just mentioned is quite adequate. I mean, there, there are actually dedicated prayers uh, for those devotions to St. Philomena, the blessing of them and the use of them, which also, again, shows the Church's endorsement. You know? And the Church d does not and cannot hold up someone to be venerated by all as a saint in heaven uh, if it's a bald-faced lie, if it's just a total mistake. Um, so to say there, there is no uh, foundation for this is nonsense. Um, there really is a St. Christopher, you know, and there really is a St. Philomelian, there really is a... Just having faith in that is, is a start of venerating them and recognizing that they are indeed saints in heaven. And we trust the Church throughout the centuries to, to, to give us that certitude. What there really is, such a saint like that in heaven today, and uh, that they are that close to us that we can call upon them and they know, they know instantaneously that we are referring to them, we, that it is they that we are calling upon. Um, so just to uh, actually respond to the fact that God has made them known and to, uh, you know, call upon them for help, that's a way of honoring them right there. The best way of venerating the saints is to recall them to mind, recall their faith, their hope, and their love for God, which sanctified them here on earth, and uh, prepared them for heaven, opened the way to heaven for them. To recall that, and recalling that then, to learn about their virtues and to imitate them. I mean, we say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And that's true. I mean, what father is not flattered when his little boy wants to be just like him, right? When a little boy wants to wear his daddy's hat, or wear dad's shoes, or, you know, just do things the way dad does. It's kind of cute when the little kid is trying to, you know, imitate his dad. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he's just imitating the movement of his dad. But uh, sometimes it's not so cute when the little boy, you know, goes out and gets his daddy's hammer and decides, I, you know, he's going to drive, <laughs> uh, drive a nail into something uh, because he saw daddy doing it. But, you know, the, the fact is that a child does that. Uh, he wants to be like his daddy. 
And uh, the same with, with ourselves. I mean, when we have people we want to be like, that is our way of saying we see something in them that we consider to be noble and worthy of imitation, and we want to have that quality that we see in them. So we're actually um, flattering them, well, not flattering them, because that has a note of like, uh, insincerity. Um, but, uh, so it's, imitation is, is the sincerest form of flattery, though, meaning that here we have sincere flattery, okay? That there really is an admiration there. And uh, uh, we want to follow them, we want to be like them, we want to uh, unite ourselves with them in, in this way. Uh, that's the first way we can honor the saints. Follow their example. How would you honor Saint Philomena? Well, in, in that way, you could honor her by purity of heart. Asking her, like with the Saint Philomena court, give grant me, please, Saint Philomena, obtain for me the grace of purity of heart. Someone who's desperately struggling with uh, the vice of, of, of lustfulness and purity could actually uh, kind of adopt her as a patron, patroness in heaven. Where the Saint Philomena Court is a sign of that, that dedication and that confidence, and uh, and gain tremendous graces from that. Again, purity of heart is something that our Lord has told us uh, is necessary to ever enter heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, so what could be a more more important grace to uh, insist? Um, than that, that we have to you have to take heaven by storm and demand the grace of purity at heart and never give up. Saint Philomena would be a great patron for that. Um, so first of all, uh, as I say, putting learning about their lives, trying to imitate their virtues, but then invoking their help too. All of that goes into venerating the saints. <coughs> Is it possible to do that, to Saint Philomena? Yes, I'd say even more so since the Novus Ordo has singled her out to try to use and abuse her um, as an object of their scorn. All the more so why uh, those who turn to her with love and confidence can expect that she will, she will help them. And Father, for, for specific prayers to St. Philomena, I don't think we could do better than recommend uh, Father Paul O'Sullivan's book uh, mm-hmm. on St. Philomena. There's, mm-hmm. or even just for, for learning more about her life, there are um, a, a, whole, a whole chapter dedicated mm-hmm. to specific prayers for St. Philomena. But sure. I think this was a wonderful book, too, just because it, it details some of her, her life of the, the revelations, or not the revelations, but the, uh, the, the, the times that, that she talked to the other, uh, I believe it was three different Mm-hmm. different accounts of her life that she gave that all coincided. They give those in the book. Mm-hmm. They, they detail countless miracles that, that she has worked on. It's really, I found really, really Well, you're right. The, the, the stories do coincide. So there are not so much three different accounts as they are. Uh, same account giving at three different times. A little more information, but they all do blend. They harmonize perfectly, and they give us a, 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 a three-dimensional picture of her life, which she gave in these three different... Um, uh, um, you know, revelations, as it were, private revelations that she gave. Um, Father Paul Sullivan is an OP, a Dominican, is a very good writer. He's written some really marvelous things. What is the um, what is the uh, the information on that book there, Tom? What what is the date on that? Can you the date I can figure it out. We have it in our bookstore here, so we mm-hmm. can definitely do that. Uh, it was first published in 1927. Mm-hmm. 
then it was republished in 1954, mm -hmm. and uh, now TAN has the, the copyrights for it. They recently mm -hmm. published it in 1993, <laughs> it looks like. But we have this available on our bookstore. We could definitely send that to any of our, our viewers for a small fee. Yes, yeah, so we have access to uh, plentiful copies mm -hmm. of these. Definitely. So uh, that's another way to uh, show devotion there to her, go. by spreading the news, definitely. by talking about her. Um, the Saint Lover of Light. You know. Um, I know Saint Lucy is the saint who is usually invoked for eye afflictions. Um, and uh, I would not in any way ever discourage anyone from invoking Saint Lucy, another virgin martyr. Okay? But Saint Philomena, the lover of light, also, together with Saint Lucy, would be a very good person to invoke for those with eye afflictions, that uh, if they're having vision problems, uh, well, uh, it seems to correspond well to someone who loves light, loves the light to uh, come to their aid and help them, especially the blind, for those who are threatened with going blind. So, uh, in any case, um, the, the term the wonder worker is applied throughout the history of the church to a relative handful of, uh, of saints who distinguish themselves by seem to have you know, extraordinary powers with God to come to the aid of those in need here on earth. And, uh, I mean, going back to the early centuries, St. Gregory the Wonder Worker, St. Gregory Thaumaturgus, as we know him, going back into the early centuries of the Church. So the fact that God has given us, uh, in, our own, in our own times, the centuries, a saint who is already known as a Wonder Worker is... Pretty extraordinary. I mean, you know, you'd think if anybody would be known as the wonder worker, it'd be St. Teresa of the Child Jesus, St. Teresa of the Little Flower, St. Teresa of Lisieux, I mean, the, the name, all these different titles. She, but here she said she will spend her heaven doing good upon earth, and she certainly has. She's done wonderful things. Um, but, you know, she died at the opposite end of the century from the, the, the day that St. Philomena that her body was actually discovered. Her remains were discovered in 1802, and St. Teresa of the Child Jesus died in 1897. And she is another one of those uh, virgin, not martyrs, but I think she had a martyr spirit about her, that's for sure. Um, very generous soul. And uh, I can't help but think that uh, St. Teresa of the Child Jesus certainly knew of St. Philomena, too. And... Um, I don't know, I'd, I'd like to think these saints had a hand in producing other saints. You know, I'll just mention this to you. Uh, when, I, um, when I was in Rome studying, I went to the catacombs of St. Philomena. In fact, I, I met my brother and uh, sister-in-law over there at one point, and we went to the catacombs of uh, the catacombs of Santa Priscilla. And... Um, <clears throat> We uh, had a little tour there by one of the Benedictine, Benedictine sisters. The Benedictine nuns are the ones now who have a, a convent there on the grounds of the old estate of St. Priscilla. And the catacombs, therefore, are uh, kind of under their, uh, their watchful eye. They will give the, um, the tours through the catacombs, they staffed the catacombs, as it were, of St. Priscilla. And so um, my brother and sister-in-law and went down, and we were having sister 
Madalena, sister, dear sister Madalena. I think she was a contemporary of St. Philomena. I'm only kidding. <laughs> She'd been there. I think she might have been there when the catacombs were originally dug. But anyway, I mean, it's hard to tell, right? But uh, she was such a dear soul and such a cheerful dear soul, obviously quite ancient. And there she was, slowly picking her way through the catacombs, uh, which, uh, you know, takes a little bit of spry, spry, um, you know, uh, bones and cartilage <laughs> and muscles to get through there. And who knows how long she'd been doing that, how many years she had been doing that. So we're going through and she's piously pointing out all these wonderful things about the catacombs of St. Priscilla. And at one point I, I mentioned to her, well, sister, the, um, the uh, remains of St. Philomena were found here in the catacombs of St. Priscilla. Can you show us where that is? And suddenly her beautiful, uh, cheerful face darkened immediately, darkened immediately, and became very troubled. It was a tremendous transformation, instantaneous. <clears throat> and she said words that were like a knife in the heart. She said, well, you know, we used to believe this, but now we do not know anymore whether that is exactly true. And then she just dropped it. And so she never showed us the, the place where they found the, the, uh, the lo locals of St. Philomena, as though <clears throat> this was taboo. This was taboo now. She could not. She was not allowed to. And it was so sad. I felt so sorry for her, you know, uh, because it was clear that she had such faith and so, you know, so much. But as soon as, uh, you know, Paul VI says, well, you know, we can't, we, we, you know, we can't believe this anymore. You can't, can't, this is not credible anymore, you know, or, that this is the effect it has on otherwise very pious souls. It darkens their, their souls like it darkens their faces and they, it's so sad. Um, <clears throat> Uh, this is, by the way, is, uh, well, I, I asked Sister Magdalena, I said, is it possible to come back and offer Mass here in the catacombs? And uh, she said, well, yes, of course, you can do that. So I arranged to do that. And uh, just a few days later, I came back to the same catacombs with my brother and sister again. I had my Mass kit with me for the true Mass. And uh, this uh, Sister Beatrice, no. Uh, showed us down into the catacombs and uh, I, I was quite surprised because she took us well you know you go to the catacombs of St. Calixtus and they're pretty sanitized in the sense that you know these very tall um, galleries you have these very tall hallways with the niches in the wall now open and empty okay uh, like uh, bunk beds almost you know in stone on either side of you uh, you know, you have in St. Calixtus 50 miles of catacomb on, on five different levels, you know, going down farther and farther into the earth. And um, quite a bit of that uh, 50 miles has been uh, investigated by archaeologists. The remains removed, the tomb, the, the, the slabs of marble or terracotta taken away, and just to leave these open openings in the walls. And the light is there, uh, but these seem very clean and, as I say, almost uh, spick and span compared to catacombs like, such as St. Sebastiano or uh, St. Domitilla, for example. 
there you're getting into catacombs that are very confining. If you have claustrophobia, you've got to be careful. We actually had someone, a very uh, fine gentleman who did have claustrophobia, he was afraid to go down to the catacombs with us. He didn't know how it would affect him. At the time, I didn't understand. Now I do understand why he was afraid of how it would affect him. But he made it through okay, but, but he had, it, was, it was difficult. He had to maintain a lot of self-control on there because it's that tight and it's that dark. I have a dim bulb every so many feet, you know, and, and uh, otherwise, you know, the rough rock walls and uh, very far cry from St. Uh, Calixtus. Uh, San Sebastiano, you know, you're rising and falling and turning and you really get a very, very uh, intense idea of what the catacombs were like. St. Domitilla even more so. We will always, when I go there with the students, I make, try to make sure they, they visit San uh, uh, Sebastiano and San Domitilla. Um, because I think those are so uh, uh, emblematic, as it were, representative of a real catacomb experience. Uh, only a couple of times have we gotten to the north, to the catacombs of St. Uh, Priscilla, where the remains of St. Bellarina were found. And um, that is very special too. Every catacomb has a, has a character of its own. There are certain things that are unique to each one of these catacombs. In the catacombs of St. Uh, Priscilla, you find marvelous frescoes dating back, you know, almost 2,000 years. And uh, records of the faith in the walls because they were Christian catacombs. You know, some were mixed. That was a Christian catacomb. Um, you find beautiful represent, representations of the faith in art uh, in those catacombs of St. Priscilla. But anyway, I, I have to get back to the story here. Um, the, um, the fact is Sister Beatrice took us down into the catacombs of St. Priscilla, and she took us into an area that was very much like I described, kind of close and you know, dimly lit, and you follow you know, a little path winding through the catacombs. And she took us to a place where it opened up and there was like a little chapel, underground chapel with a marble slab there uh, raised from the floor. And it had been there for many years, long before the Novus Oro came out. And relics of the saints, the martyrs, were there in it. So it was a real altar. And she left us there. The three of us, she just left. She said, I will come back in about an hour. Now, you know, you have miles of catacombs. Not all of them have even been explored yet. Not all of them are lit, you know, and beyond those dim lights. I mean, it's dark as anything. I mean, it's absolute darkness, you know. They've actually had in the past some teenagers, boys, of course, you know, decide it would be an adventure to try to break ranks from the tour and break in, you know, not that St. Philomena, but to go into that part, they had to be rescued. They were just completely engulfed in darkness down there. I mean, that was not really terrifying. At least I hope it was terrifying enough to drive them sensitive to them. But regardless, I mean, but she just left us down there. I thought, well, this is perfect. So I opened up the basket, set everything up, and offered mass down there. And as I, as I, uh, when I finished mass, I was putting everything back in the basket, and Sister Beatrice reappeared, and she was. Standing there, kind of just silently observing me, putting everything back in my basket, and realized, she realized, I didn't use the thing that 
things that, that were brought down there. I used everything that I had myself. And I could see the wheels returning. You know. So she said, uh, this is really peculiar even to remember this now after all these years. She said, what, what's this? What is, oh no, she came during the last gospel, the Latin last gospel. She said, what, what is this strange ceremony? I thought, oh my goodness. Uh, now, Sister Beatrice might have been from the generation after Sister, Mary Mag Sister Madalena, but she still would easily remember the traditional Latin Mass. Um, so I, I said, well, it's the Mass. She said, oh, the Mass, it's the Mass. So she just stood there, like, staring. And they said, well, it's the traditional Mass. I know, I said, it's the Latin Mass. She said, ah, oh, the Latin Mass. Silence. So I said, sister, it's the traditional Latin Mass. She said, the traditional Latin Mass. That's all she said. I guess, you know. So anyway, so without a word, she turns with, and, and we all understood, we're following her. So we just fell and step behind her. Doesn't say a word. We're following her back down through the tunnels. And we finally get to the great stairway that leads up, you know, because these are down underground. You do have to run some stairs to get up to ground level again. Doesn't say a single word the whole way. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, she silently figured the, uh, you know, uh, the Carabinieri are going to be up there waiting for us. <laughs> or, you know, the Polizia of Rome are going to be waiting for us. Or at least the, you know, the, the Benedictine, um, you know, uh, equivalent of you know, the secret police or somebody going to be waiting for us. So we get up top, and Sister Beatrice finally breaks her silence, okay? We're out in the garden, we're out in the courtyard there, like the cloister. My brother's there, my sister-in-law's there, <clears throat> and Sister Beatrice says, we're thanking her, and she says, you pray very much, don't you? She says that to me. I figure, well, I mean, who, I don't, I don't, I, who prays very much, who prays enough? You know, I didn't say that. I said, well, I didn't answer her. And she just said, you are a saint. I thought I was going to have to reach for the holy oils to anoint my brother. I thought he was going to just die laughing on the spot. I mean, his reaction, I could see it in his eyes when she said to me, you are a saint, you know. And, uh, uh, well, you know, your brother, you know, your know, brother doesn't necessarily consider you a saint <laughs> under any circumstances, but anyway. So, um, but he, let's just say he was not impressed. Um, and uh, fortunately, Sister Beatrice was not uh, entitled to canonize me because I'm far from being a saint, and I know that. But here's what she said. She said, please pray for me. She said, pray for me. I thought, well, that's interesting. She, here's a Benedictine nun who wants me to pray for her. I thought, well, that's, you know, that's quite a commission. I would say. But after seeing the, you know, the, the effect of St. Philomena's name on St. Uh, uh, Madalena, and, uh, and what, you know, just the fact that they have this treasure there, and the Novus Ordo has robbed them of this. Uh, of course, I mean, ever since then, I, I remember, I remember St. Sister Mary Madalena, I remember uh, Sister Beatrice, and I, yes, I do pray for them. 
How can I not pray for them? You know? I feel so sorry for them. But it's like these good souls are in the grip of this Novus Ordo, this merciless, cruel, martyrist Novus Ordo, which can dictate to them what they can believe and what they can't. How sad, you know. And I, I asked St. Philomena to bless them. I imagine they both passed on right now because I'm talking about 20 years ago, uh, a little more than 20 years ago now. So, uh, but I don't forget them. So uh, maybe people who are listening would offer a little prayer for them too. Sure. Uh, but I would recommend they ask St. Philomena to uh, intercede for them. If they both passed on, well, now they know, <laughs> you know. And the Novus Ordo can't uh, deceive them any longer. Um, I just hope they're blessed in their knowledge. So anyway, let's uh, ask St. Philomena to pray for, for us. And there's a reason why God has made her known to us now. And I can't help but think that it's benefited the traditional Catholic people in a very particular way. So St. Philomena, pray for us. Definitely. Thanks for being here tonight, Father. Thanks, Appreciate time. your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.